Last week at Monday Morning Report, Carl showed a picture to the whole school, a famous one, of Rabbi Heschel and Martin Luther King marching together in Selma. And this picture is certainly well known. I'm pretty sure everyone in the Heschel community has seen it before. And certainly it's one of the first, if not the first thing that people think of when they think of Heschel is his friendship with Martin Luther King his, and his legacy of civil rights and activism. But what do we really know about the backstory of that photo, of that moment, of that little snapshot of what is part of the larger life and larger movement? So this week we're going more in depth on that and we're gonna hear from Rabbi Everett Gendler and his wife Mary, who were very up close and involved with that and whose special story will give hopefully everyone some nice insight and meaning into that picture, what it means for us today as a community and following Rabbi Heschel's legacy. Hey everyone, welcome to episode three of Pod and Such a Man, the official student podcast of Heschel High School. I am your host with the Hall of French Toast, Theo Cantor. Joining me as always, Gidon Kamina. Hello, it's great to be here. Um, I hope you had a great MLK Day weekend, and we hope to make it even more meaningful in retrospect today with this interview with Rabbi Everett Gendler and his wife Mary, which we will be getting to right now. First of all, thank you so, so much for uh, taking this time. This is a real honor. Considering that you have such an important uh, part in the in the history of civil rights activism and uh, among Jews and uh, a really great legacy, we wanted to interview you a little bit about that. Fine. Our pleasure. So I suppose, first of all, why don't you I said, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, how you got into being a rabbi, being an activist. Uh, well, Everett, that, go that, ahead. That, that will take a, would take a very long time. Mm-hmm. Let, let, I, I could get, uh, say briefly that when I was uh, in high school, two of my companions were the prophet Amos and Henry David Thoreau. And along with our synagogue youth group, my close affiliation was the uh, regional branch of the American Friends Service Committee in Des Moines, Iowa, where uh, I spent my adolescence. And uh, that would predispose one to social engagement, or let's say societal engagement and activism. And Mary, your background? Well, I grew up with um, parents. Ultimately, my father voted for Goldwater. I don't need to say too much more than that. But I was like, I don't know why I became concerned about other people since nobody in my family was. But I, I was. And the only people I had to talk to was a Quaker family who introduced me to I Have Stone. And, I mean, they, they were like the only people I knew I could talk to. And then I went to Stanford, and the first year they had a class required called Western Civ, and I got accused of being a socialist. So I guess I've been making trouble for a long time. Not sure why. <laughs> I guess uh, if we if we want to focus on, on that, on this specific time frame of um, the civil rights movement, um, I guess we would love to hear how how you specifically became active in the civil rights movement and in Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement, and particularly the the uh, Selma march and the Jewish contingent. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, if I recall correctly, didn't uh, didn't you say that uh, Martin Luther King was your uh, matchmaker? 
Yes, yes. We'll tell you about that a little later. I can, I can, I, again, I want to try to keep it, you know, reasonably brief. So, uh, I, I can pinpoint exactly of my major, when my major involvement began and it continued, uh, throughout the movement. I was, uh, I had served congregations in Mexico City. I'd been in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I had come back and I finally was going to take a pulpit in Princeton, New Jersey, beginning 1st of August, 1962. So 1st of August, 1962, I moved into the uh, house that the congregation had for the rabbi, and I was sleeping on the floor because my furniture hadn't come, and I'd been there about two days, hadn't met anybody, uh, was just trying to settle in. I got a phone call from a colleague, Cy Dresner, a reform rabbi in, in New Jersey, uh, I was, I had been ordained at Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, I was cons- at that time conservative, but it, it didn't matter. Anyway, he said, I got a call from Dr. King. There's real trouble in Albany, Georgia. And uh, the, the police chief there, Lori Pritchett, is really behaving very circumspectly. And the movement is stalled. King would love to have some northern clergy come just to boost morale and numbers. Would you come? I said, sigh. Man, I'm sleeping on the floor here. And I'm waiting for my furniture. I haven't yet conducted a Friday night service. This was Sunday morning. He said, no, don't worry. I come down and... Well, the demonstration will be on Tuesday. Wednesday, you'll go home. You're in plenty of time for your first Friday night service. So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I've got to get settled in. And on the other hand, I was also facing the fact that sometimes you have to ask yourself, will I put my body where my mouth has been. Because, you know, I was in principle in favor of all these things. Anyway, long and short of it, I said, okay, I'll come down. So I came down, and uh, actually I was lucky because I had a couple days. uh, The march started later. I had a couple days to be around while they were doing the strategic planning, got a real feel of it. And then we had the demonstration, only it didn't turn out quite as planned because all of us got jailed. And so I was in uh, the Lee County stockade uh, for, my, for my inaugural Friday night service in Princeton. So that's how I got catapulted into the movement. And then the following May, I led a group of 19 rabbis down to Birmingham at the time of the police dogs and the fire hose. So that's the uh, that's how mine began. And Mary can tell you about her involvement beginning with Selma, and that was something we did together. Well, it, 
beginning for me was a little before Selma. I was living in Kansas City, which is where I grew up, and all my friends had left, so I didn't I didn't have anybody to go out with. But I, the assistant rabbi at the temple was a nice guy, and so uh, I was going out with him. And he called me and he said, uh, "There's a rabbi named Everett Gendler who's been working with Martin Luther King, and he's going to come and talk about it. Would you like to go?" And I said, "Sure, of course I would." So we went, and because he and Jim both had a common girlfriend in New York. We went out for tea um, after uh, after the program, and Everett was with his brother-in-law, and I was with Jim. Anyway, we exchanged addresses, and we rode back and forth, and then he asked me to come and visit him. And the invitation was unique. I had never heard one like this. Would you like to come and hear... Wanda Landowski, I'm sorry, Rosalind Tours played the Goldberg Variation. And I went, what? What is this? But I was intrigued enough to go and find out. And uh, so I went to visit him over vacation, and I came back 10 days later, and I told my parents I was getting married. Um, So how did this all, (laughs) which they sort of freaked on in any way, but we did, and it's been more than 52 years now. but uh so that that was how uh how I got into working with the king but of course uh my my feelings my uh opinions had been very supportive of that I was just in school and didn't get active till I met Everett Both of us went to Selma together the following part yeah, of the year We were married in May and then the following March were the, the, were the three marches in Selma. We were at the second one. The first one got kind of beaten up, and then the second one uh, was the frustrating turnaround at the bridge, and then we did not go back for the final triumphal march, but we were there for the second one. What was it like? What do you remember? Mary, you want Okay, well, I have, I have some memories. I remember sitting in the church and hearing all the music and, and uh, sitting, like, close to everybody, and that was very exciting. And I remember starting on the march and looking at the guys on the sides, big, burly guys with very eager, huge, snarly-looking dogs. So that was pretty scary. That's what I remember so much of the march. The other thing that, and it was sort of my own doing, but it's connected. We were going oh, home. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No. Go ahead. No, I was. I'll just give a couple details yeah. about the march. So I, I, I certainly remember the police with the um, police dogs and the large clubs, and but particularly the gas masks, because gas masks have a peculiarly humanizing effect. I had I'd been participant in a lot of demonstrations in New York when I was a student at seminary, and I got to know the tactical police force in New York. These were mounted policemen, and they towered above us on their horses, but they had human faces. And here in Selma, as we were marching, all the police, all the state troopers had on these masks, 
and uh, take a look sometime at photos of masked, uh, gas masked police, and you long for the warmth of your local robot. So uh, that that's one of the powerful memories. The other one I should mention is for reasons that made perfect strategic sense. King turned us back when the police, even after the police, this second time opened the path, and all of us wanted to go on ahead, and we didn't know that King had made an agreement that he would observe the federal injunction not to march because he wanted the rule of law to support uh, desegregation later, and he knew that he mustn't violate it, and he had pledged to follow that injunction. But we didn't know this, and we'd all come down, and, you know, we were so busy, and here we were, and now we have a chance to march across the bridge, and we got turned back. Very frustrating. And the other thing that I, and here I know I speak for Mary, the other thing we remember is we went back into town, and we were kind of hanging around waiting because then we were going to fly out that night, and literally around the corner from us, a fellow clergyman, a Unitarian minister, James Reeb, was found by a, a group of, of segregationists, clubbed and beaten to death. So that was all pretty scary. Yeah. Now, yeah. now I had uh, another scary incident at the <laughs> Birmingham airport. We flew from Selma to Birmingham, and then we had quite a long way over, and we were we were pretty tired by that time. So uh, I went to see, and they actually had a hotel at the airport. Now we we were dressed very casually. The call from King was to come down, and so we were like in in very casual clothes, maybe blue jeans. I don't know, whatever. But um, everybody in uh, a lot of people in Birmingham, I suspect, knew that the uh, the call had gone out for northern clergy. So I, being clueless and dumb, write down on the form, registration form, Rabbi and Mrs. Everett Gendler, blah, 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 blah. So the guy behind the desk takes the paper. He looks at me. He goes to the back, uh, back a few steps, and he's showing it to someone else, and they're looking at the form. And I suddenly got it that he simply knew who who, who I was and who we were. And all I could think of was that we would be murdered in our room, which may have been act, an action, actual uh, truth. Anyway, I had like a panic attack. I turned around, and I ran just as fast as I could run to the other end of the of the airport. But in many ways, that was the most frightening moment for me, um, and that is one I have certainly never forgotten. I don't think I've ever had a panic attack like that before or since. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's quite a story. It was quite a happening. Anyway. Then Dr. King led another contingent through the town. 
This time, there is no violence. The 1,000 Negroes and 400 white ministers and civil rights workers reach the end of the bridge where the cordon of troopers stand. They are ordered to turn back. Dr. King confers with the police as the marchers hold their ground. He requests that they be allowed to pray. There are a few minutes of mounting tension. The troops and deputies stand stolidly by as the prayers are said and the marchers go back to Selma. This Alabama town will go down in the history books as a turning point in the civil rights drive. From the halls of Congress to the smallest crossroads hamlet, people can understand the plea that no American can have freedom and justice unless there is freedom and justice for all. In Selma, there is a lesson to be learned. So I guess I would further ask you, well, uh, Everett, you were, at least according to your Wikipedia page, you were uh, responsible for bringing the contingent of rabbis from JTS to the, to the march, is that correct? Uh, no, well, Different march. Uh, the, which one? The, the JTS, the rabbis. Oh, yeah. Taking uh, the in, rabbis down. In May of, yeah, I was, this was in May of, I guess, that must have been 63. Yeah. Uh, it uh, actually turned out that uh, Rabbi Heschel was, that it, there was a rabbinical assembly convention up in the Catskills, and Heschel was there, and we're all meeting, and here are these, here are these front page photos in the New York Times of the little children marching in Birmingham, and the police with the big dogs and the fire hose, and oh my God, you know. We realize uh, how can we sit here and not do something? So nineteen of us went down, and I, I would say that Heschel was inspirational and really, you know, encouraged the the rabbinical assembly to uh, send a delegation and be there physically. So we did. And, and Birmingham was frightening and tough, but there were enough northern clergy and enough whites so that the the little kids were actually protected, which was, of course, the reason we went. Wait, so and I'm sorry, can you just just restate that for our for our listeners? Just uh, so so, what was this key reason why you went? Oh. Because we saw these, the, you know, the, the little, the, this was a march where, and it's, you know, people still discuss the ethics of it, but where King and company and Andy Young actually mobilized the children to march. And there are people who still criticize it and say children shouldn't be, you know, put at such risk. And there were others who would say, look, without this risk, the children spend their lives disabled and suffering from the deprivation of segregation. Anyway, when we saw, when we saw these children being subjected to uh, actual police dogs and high-pressure fire hoses, we, we just couldn't stay safely up north. And we went down to offer them protection, knowing that 
the local police and even uh, police chief uh, Bull Connor would hesitate to have police dogs and fire hose actively hitting white northern clergy, rabbis, priests, ministers, nuns. So we went down to offer some protection for those children, and uh, that was successful. So that's basically why we went, and as I say, it was with Heschel's encouragement and blessing. Well, so, so I guess it sounds like um, it was uh, for a strategic reason, but also this um, this really strong ideological reason. Right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. King was a combination of a wonderful inspiration and also a savvy field general. Nonviolent general. He was okay on strategy. Very smart. So, I guess tell me a little bit about your, first of all, your relationship with with King as as you were an activist, uh, but also as you were at JTS. I'd love to hear about your relationship with Heschel. Okay. I, again, it'll have to be very brief. But I I had been a student of Heschel's at Jewish Theological Seminary. We were emotionally very close because we sort of thought similarly and felt alike. And um, I mean, in uh, Edward Kaplan's biography of Heschel, I I don't remember it, but he actually credits me with having uh, encouraged King and arranged for him to go to Selma with those incredible photos and and that beautiful march with King. But anyway, I was very close to Heschel and um, became even closer because I was sort of his liaison with King for one uh, period when he was getting involved with the movement, and I had been involved with the movement. With King, uh, well, as I say, we met under auspicious circumstances. We met when they was planning the um, demonstration in Albany, Georgia, and then we got arrested together. We got resegregated and shipped off for two-plus days and nights to uh, the uh, Lee and Terrell County stockades, but and then um, I I saw him again in Birmingham, and then again in Selma, and then and this is painful, but literally less than ten days before he was assassinated, I chaired a session at the Rabbinical Assembly convention at which he spoke. And I, uh, Heschel introduced him, and I then provided him with questions that had been collected from colleagues. You know, I was blessed to have had close personal contact on those few occasions. But uh, Mary, besides the contact in Selma, had an earlier contact when we, you won't believe this. That was the later one, Everett. That was the JTS one. Was it? Yeah. I don't think so. But anyway, when did, when maybe it was. Anyway. Well, this was way before 9-11, and we actually picked them up 
at the airport, which just seems sort of so amazing at this point, and uh, took them uh, in my little red VW bus. Um, so Everett was driving, and King was in the front, and I was in the back with Coretta, who could barely fit in there because she was a tall woman, and this was a very small car. Anyway, I'm 24 years old, and I look at her, and I say, what's it like to be married to such an important man? And she is silent for a minute, and she says, well, you know, it's mixed. Uh, you know, we have four children, and Martin's never around. He can't, he doesn't do anything in the house with the kids. So it, it's not all that easy. And I'm going, oh, my God, how could she say something like that? And then the next year I had a baby, and I totally, totally understood what she was talking about. The early feminist. <laughs> That's a human side of movement politics. Okay, well, yeah. let me ask you another thing. I would say today, at least, uh, having gone to the Heschel School for, for me, but I think the Jewish community as a whole takes a lot of pride in that picture, uh, in the presence of Jews at the march. But to a certain extent, the picture can only capture a picture. It's just a moment. I, I guess what do you think is sort of missing in the perception of that picture um, as we see it today? Oh, well, well, I'll tell you, uh, the, the photo you're, you're saying, is that the one that also, I mean, that, Heschel and King and Ralph Abernathy, and and then is a Maurice Eisendrath from the Union of American Hebrew Congregations carrying the Torah, and then I'm flanking him with a flag. And he usually gets cut off of those pictures. Yeah, but, but is that the picture you're talking about? Well, that's one of them, and then there's the one of uh, of them with and then and them and uh, Ralph Bunch with the Hawaiian lays. There's a bunch of them. Well, the, them. yeah, there are different ones, sure. The the one with Bunch and so on, and Heschel and so on, that was a moment of triumph in the march from Selma because the federal government had lent its power and the injunction was out and federal troops were posted to guard the marchers. I mean, had we... Had that, on that second march, gone over the bridge that day and marched and stopped someplace overnight, I don't know how many of us would have been dead next morning. Whereas this way you had federal troops and even the locals were, they were respectful of federal authority. The the photo where you have Maurice Eisendrath carrying the Torah was a different occasion. That was at the Arlington National Cemetery, and that had to do with the Vietnam War. And uh, there were very few blacks at that one because the uh, the black community, the, the Negro community at that time, was split. And the NAACP and the Urban League uh, disapproved of King's criticism of the Vietnam War because they wanted Johnson's support on civil rights. And King said you can't separate them. So each photo is different. And I don't know if you have the one. There's also one that just shows King and me at the Concord, and that, of course, was the photo that was taken just uh, less than 10 days before he, he 
So you know, each one has a, a, a different a different set of experiences connected with it, and uh, each one would be a a terrific opportunity to explore all kinds of questions. You know, communities and politics and government favor and disfavor, and how communities get together, and then how they experience tensions. When you see those photos, do you feel uh, do you do you feel taken back to there? Oh, when you of see course. Them, do you feel like you're uh, there again? Oh, those are beautiful memories. They're sobering. They're in some ways frightening, and they're inspiration for a lifetime. Would, wouldn't you say that, Mary, about your experience of Selma? Oh, yeah, of course. So you mentioned that there was a split in the black community on Vietnam, and there was, there was also a split in the Jewish community about the civil rights movements at all. As in, I, I recall reading that Heschel was sort of ostracized by his colleagues at the seminary. Did you feel the same way? Well, you know, Heschel, um, a, a, I, I wouldn't say he was ostracized by the seminary, but but the seminary, the Jewish Theological Seminary at that time was uh, had a much more hard, critical attitude of scholarship. And Heschel representative, uh, represented a kind of softer, spiritual, inspirational approach to Jewish texts. So it, it was there was a difference of approach, and Heschel was just a little bit different from the prevailing current at that time. But it is also true that uh, there were people at the seminary who did not approve of this kind of engagement politically uh, on the um, issue of societal policy and uh, pressure politics. But it was amazing to see this scion of the shtetl, Heschel, and this um, descendant from some generations of black, segregated Christian clergy in the South. It was amazing to see what how deep was their spiritual kinship and their personal affection. So um, in, in school, we've been reading a lot about Rabbi Heschel and his theology, and particularly how his religion um, affected and informed and shaped his commitment to social activism. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that and, and I guess your own experience with how your religion and your religious training informed your activism. Well, uh, I mean, the um, if one if one takes you know seriously the 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 haftarot the words of the prophets those are all calls to action and they're calls to action on specific issues. I mean, uh, the prophets raise questions of what are the wages that you pay the poor? How promptly do you 
provide the money? Are your housing policies such that there is housing for everyone, or do the people with money have two, three, four places to live, and others homeless on the streets? So the <clears throat> the prophets demand that we ask those kinds of questions and respond, and certainly. Um, you know, Heschel exemplified it, and his, um, you know, the involvement with King, his statement, my, um, you know, my feet were praying. Yeah. So, uh, the the connections were there. What was remarkable about Heschel, and, uh, and I think you can summarize it this way, he was his chair at the seminary was Professor of Jewish Ethics and Mysticism. And there's often a split between the contemplatives, those who are into spirituality, as they say these days, and those who are out marching on the streets. Heschel showed their basic connection, the intrinsic interweaving of those two elements, and those make for a healthy and a robust and a valuable religious tradition. And that is what the Bible is really about. Wow. That's really profound. Um, but I wanted to ask you also... Well, both of you are, are involved currently still in activism, so I'd like to hear about uh, what you currently do and perhaps also how your religion informs that. Uh, and maybe, I guess, to conclude, what advice, wisdom you have for this next generation of activists, because it's certainly another time that we need people like you speaking out. Yeah. Okay, let me answer a bit of it. We actually have not been involved in the uh, civil rights in the, you know, black and white uh, uh, struggle uh, for a long, 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 long time. But what we have been doing is we've been working with Tibetans uh, exile, in exile in India and teaching them about a strategic approach to nonviolent struggle. And we've done that for the last 22 years. So that's sort of where we put our activism at the, up to now. And this is, you know, this is the nonviolent movement of the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan exiles in India trying to respond to the Chinese oppression. And I, let me just add that basically the Tibetan exile community has a leader who, in the spirit of King and quoting him and inspired by him, uh, preaches non-violence as the necessary method for achieving dignity and justice. And um, the Tibetans hear this, and they certainly comply with the Dalai Lama's preachment, and he's inspiring people in the West fill stadiums and the Boston Garden to hear him speak. But how do you translate 
this idealism into practical programs. And uh, King really knew how to do it. I mean, the civil rights movement was active and it transformed our society. Anyway, um, do, do you want to say a little more, Mary, about you know the, the kind of educational program? Well, what we've been doing is um, going <laughs> and talking to. This is all set up through the through the Tibetans themselves in exile, and giving them an overview, basically, of the work of Dr. Gene Sharp, whose work on strategic nonviolence was um, used in Serbia and in Egypt and in Tunisia. And uh, it really involves, you know, looking at the whole situation and studying it and uh, looking at what what your goals are and what could be, what's the goal of this particular demonstration, et cetera. So they send us around. They have communities all over India. And we talk to monks and nuns and business people and a lot of time in the schools and organizations. As I said, we started that in 1995, and uh, uh, it's still going now. And about 10 years ago, we started an NGO, Active Nonviolence Education Center, so that um, there's a, a, a Tibetan presence. You know, just to have two two old foreigners coming once a year is just not enough. So we have this very small uh, program, the uh, Active Nonviolent Education Center, and so they can do there uh, do things all all year round. And we've been commuting. I guess we've been sixteen or eighteen times to India to lead workshops, and we've done one day workshops and three hour presentations, and we've done full week and two week workshops, you know, with case studies and people do strategic thinking, and uh, it's very interesting, you know, East meets West, and uh, work together. That's very inspiring. Well, we're inspired by it. I'll tell you, most recently, September, we headed off, and I actually helped a small liberal congregation in Den Pasar, Bali, helped that congregation celebrate Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and then we flew to Dharamsala in India and did workshops there, celebrated the 10th anniversary of the ANEC, the Active Nonviolence Education Center, and uh, made it home once again. Grateful for the privilege and yeah, a little bit weary from the journey. Oh, and next year it hasn't happened yet, but there's um there's still some Gandhians in India and they're still trying to you know spread the word and everything. Well, apparently there is going to be some program there next spring, and they have invited our agency to participate with them. So um, I don't think we're going to be able to resist going to India to have a workshop at Severgram. Uh that would be that's like the third piece of it. You've got you've got King, you've got the Dalai Lama and then to do something at the Gandhian place just feels like that's really completing the circle. Oh indeed. 
And listen, uh, if you want to make that circle a square, I'll give you a fourth axis. I am right now, every day, trying to work hard. I'm working on translating and interpreting and uh, the, the writings of an East European uh, shtetl rabbi, uh, Aaron Samuel Tamaris. He lived from inspired and proud of Rabbi Heschel for his involvement in the civil rights movement, but I felt that there was always something sort of lacking in today, in, to, in today's Jews and today's civil rights. But I understand from their story that 
religious involvement in political activism isn't just possible, but it's really necessary for our spiritual health, for our political health. And I think that their story, I think that more people should know their story and more people should be inspired by it. It really kindles a spark in all of us to do what we can to be spiritually active, politically active, and to never give up hope. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the most important parts of the story and, and the way it was told and approaching it this way is that it's it's a very personal human story, as Rabbi Evergambler said. And it, it's also a story that highlights the fact that this, this wasn't uh, like a mythical movement or something. This wasn't something that's um, uh, separated from the world, right? This was a very concrete sort of uh, strategic issue, right? And and Martin Luther King, you know, he said, uh, Rabbi Evergambler, that Martin Luther King was a, you know, a, a brilliant field general, right? Like he he wasn't just this spiritual leader or something, right? He was he was really a strategic person who thought about how to achieve these goals and took tangible action to achieve them. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. And certainly today, both in regard to Rabbi Heschel and certainly Martin Luther King, all over Twitter and Facebook and social media, a lot of people take their quotes and their pictures and their life work a little bit out of context to advance their own personal goals, to make it a little bit less incendiary, more colorblind. And I think that this story really sees that those great figures in context for the brave, bold, revolutionary people that they were and who were willing to make a real splash to have their voices be heard for what was right. And I think that we all um, owe them our respect and our inspiration and our continued action today. A huge, huge thank you to Everett and Mary Gendler for their time, their story, and their past and ongoing work. And thank you to our listeners as well, who can now tune in not only on SoundCloud, but also on iTunes, where they can also leave a positive review if they feel so inclined. And if you don't feel so inclined, you can uh, leave it in the suggestion box, right. which is the trash. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also thank you to our feature in a recent Haaretz article, which you can check out. Uh, so be sure to tune in next time for another great interview with a very special guest. Uh, thank you to our producer, Alana, and, uh, and of course, Gidon. So uh, I'm Theo Cantor. I'm Gidon. This has been Pod and Search Your Man.